Hey everyone, welcome back to the Matt Report Gap Season, the finale of the Gap Season, as we butt right up against the uh, season premiere of Season 4 of the Matt Report, which uh, I said is going to be in a Netflix style while I'll release all of the episodes. Well, such a glorious idea, but something I didn't really think through. I talked to the folks over at my podcast uh, hosting network, the folks over at Blueberry, and they make the PowerPress podcast plug-in. They said, look, man, if you release all 10 episodes at once... The listeners are only going to get the last episode that iTunes picks up in the feed or Google Play or Stitcher, that kind of thing. So it's not the best strategy. And I said, boy, I never really thought of that. I'm such a professional podcaster. I said, geez, uh, never really dawned on me, right? So what I'm going to do is if you head over to mattreport.com slash season four, that's where you'll be able to listen to all of the episodes. Uh, So I will make all of the episodes available uh, only on that landing page come October 20th. Okay, it's not there yet. So if you, you're listening to this today, it's it's not going to be there. So 404. <laughs> uh, but season four will be on amatreport.com slash season four, the number four. And uh, all of the episodes will be there. You can browse right to that page when you want to listen. You can even download them uh, and uh, you can access them all there. Otherwise, I plan on just publishing them at probably a normal cadence, uh, maybe every four days, five days, something like that. Uh, through iTunes and the regular channels, and that will uh, that will satisfy anyone who does not want to go to the page, and you just want these episodes to land in your podcatcher, iTunes, whatever, uh, without any kind of uh, manual intervention. But again, that's mattreport.com slash season four, and that's where you can uh, binge listen to all of the awesome interviews. And let me tell you something, some amazing episodes in season four. I'm really proud of some of the people that I've interviewed. I think they do a phenomenal job, and I hope that their message gets out a little bit more for being on the show. Uh, I think there's a lot of folks doing some pretty amazing things that we don't hear from every day, people that are not even in the WordPress space, uh, in fact. But today is the end of the gap season. I had Carrie Dills on the first one, Topher DeRosa the second one, Morton Rand Hendrickson, which has been an absolute fave so far. But, but... Saving best for last, Diane Kinney, uh, here to do a Q&A episode where she asked her audience, her friends, her family, <laughs> her fans, post status, um, to drop her some questions and she would answer them. She brings her talents in marketing, branding, project management, uh, enterprise development, the corporate world, uh, and how she has uh, exited that uh, and become a, you know, successful WordPress uh, freelancer consultant, not even WordPress, uh, just a successful freelance consultant out there helping other folks uh, achieve uh, their goals. And this is a great q and I hope you enjoy it. It is the end of the gap season. I look forward to season four. Again, it's matreport.com slash season four. That's where you'll get them all. And matreport.com slash subscribe. I recently sent out a heartfelt letter to the old newsletter. Finally, uh, and uh, it was I've got some great um, testimonials of people saying that they love the show to keep on doing it. I question whether or not I should just end it all <laughs> and stop doing WordPress podcasts because unsure if folks are really finding the value in in what I do. Um, and uh, you do. And that's a reinforcement encouragement to doing the show. Anyway, enough rambling. Let's get into Diane's Q&A. Over the Matt Report. 
my takeover, I asked our fellow WordPressers to send in questions. I definitely don't have all the answers, but would like to share a few ideas. Let's get into it. Our first question is from David Ostrov. David asks, with the advent of themes that fit every design style, has project management become less important? Really, what I'm saying is the process has gotten simpler, and does that mean that the tools that matter are different or not needed? David, I think project management itself is getting increasingly more important in the WordPress space. When you're working on larger projects, project management is, of course, critical to coordination and delivery. Your scenario focuses on off-the-shelf themes. That can be a straightforward implementation if your only focus is installing and configuring the theme for clients. If you do this work in volume, you need an overall plan to be as efficient as possible, since it isn't very lucrative. Ideally, you're offering clients other value-added services in addition to theme setup. If that's the case, you may want to look at tools that are less focused on the project management process and more focused on client follow-up, like CRM tools or task managers like Asana and Trello. Lisa Snyder asks, can you suggest a good procedure for helping business owner clients to remember to make annual payment for support and updates on third-party plugins and themes that are active on their website? I find that business owners often overlook the emails about plugins and themes as they forget about the tools helping to power their website. Hey, Lisa, we see a fair amount of this, even around domain hosting and renewals. Customers don't see these names in front of them the way that we do and don't always recognize their importance. If you've got an investment in your relationship with this client, suggest a support plan or a retainer. This can be modestly priced for small business clients, and it keeps you connected with them for future work and referrals. A mystery renewal is the perfect time to broach the subject of how you could help them proactively monitor renewals, updates, and the general health of their site. Our host Matt asks, as you grow as a consultant, how do you continue to invest in yourself to improve your degree of increased expectations? It's one thing to raise your rates. It's another to deliver on that expectation. Hmm, I've got a two-part answer on this one. If you want to grow in skill and value, you have to commit to lifelong learning. Every dimension of working online, providing client solutions, developing products, it changes very rapidly. You can and probably should do this in a variety of ways. Online courses, peer networking like Slack groups, mastermind groups are all areas that have worked for me. Self-study is another big one for me. I'd like to identify an area where I, I'm not strong at some point in time. So about a decade ago, I set myself on a path to learn email marketing, for example. So those are, are very good strategies. Identify something specific that you'd like to master and add to your expertise. Figure out what's happening in that space. Educate yourself about it. What tools are people using? In a lot of cases, your own business can be your best learning tool. You know, you need to market, you have a website, you use tools for it. You know, don't, don't screw up, but that, that can be a really, really solid way to learn. If you're going to raise your rates as your skills increase, you need to actually have success with these skills. You know, I could take a course in React or growing a freelance business and then announce myself as the newest expert in this field with no track record. 
this will eventually end poorly. A segment of people get away with this for a while, but real value means real skills and your reputation is very valuable. So I would make sure that you can actually deliver whatever you're selling before you sell it. Ginger Coolidge writes in with an excellent question, and it's one that challenges many solo practitioners. Ginger asks, My biggest challenge right now is knowing what to focus on. I'm guessing at the end of each day I should write down what I would like to get accomplished the next day. It's a small thing, but better than nothing. This is a challenge to be completely by myself. Ideally, I'd work best with a small team. I think writing down what you need to do the next day is an excellent starting point. The scenarios where we're not actively being managed are becoming more and more common, so we need to learn to manage ourselves. There are two different areas of focus when you're solo, at least two, kind of leaving your personal life and health and well-being and family out of it. You've got the work that you need to do for clients and the work you need to do on your own business. Creating a to-do list the night before is a great start. I'd then try to move to planning out a week. I grab my notebook Sunday night and map out what I'd like to happen that week. It's not a big exercise. I just, you know, make some notes, key things that I want to make sure happen. It doesn't really ever happen the way that I plan, but I do have a plan. Over time, you can increase this, like start looking at a month. Do, do some solid business planning. One idea that's been new for me and really helpful is a book called The 12-Week Year. It's based out of corporate sales work and creating high performers, but it, it really could be a great tool for freelancers. We've been doing a mastermind group with this book as a focus, and it teaches you to plan in 12-week cycles with very concrete goals for those 12 weeks. You go through go through an exercise and identify some goals and they have to be a small number so they're actually doable. You then break those goals down into weekly actions and keep track of them. So if this is something that you're interested in in getting more skills and planning, I'd really check out that book. Also, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, Nobody, you know, wakes up with mad skills around planning an organization. Well, probably some people do, but most of us don't. So start to work on planning and stick with it because it will pay off. On a related note, Angelica Yard asks, what are some of your favorite tools for project management? This is a great question. Lately, I've been thinking about project management tools and how they fit into our businesses. I like to start by thinking about process. What is the problem I'm trying to solve? There's so many possible answers. Client communication, better onboarding, client education, team scheduling, keeping track of tasks, what's due when. Uh, My approach is to write down my objective, um, almost like needs analysis in a software project. So I'll write down something like, I need a place to store client contact info. Keep all of our emails in one place and be prompted to make regular contact. I'd also like to see when I last worked with this client. So once I've kind of written out my need, then looking at that and reading it back to myself, that points me towards CRM style tools. Then I start looking at tools, at their functionality. Does it do what I want? Do I like the way it looks? 
Does it integrate with other tools I use? We're having a, a really common scenario when we all talk online that goes something like this. I use this tool. I use this tool. And then the person says, I think I should use that tool because two people said that. That skips the whole part of, you know, how does this fit your scenario and your business? Classic project management is really about resource scheduling, dependency management, other complex things, keeping track of your costs. If you're working on larger complex projects, you'll need a tool that supports these features. And those tend to be in the, in the higher end, um, tools like JIRA. If you're working on more typical freelance small agency projects, you're usually really managing people, tasks, and dates. You don't necessarily need a Gantt chart, dependency management. These are where the, the popular solutions that you see out there, Asana, Trello, Basecamp, Freedcamp come in. I do the same thing before I choose one of these tools. I used to have tool crazy. I new tool, I would try it. I'd spend a lot of time you know, setting up, when you get into a tool, you have to fill everything out and set everything up the way you want it, you know, and then you actually commit to putting information in there. And then you're like, oh, I hate this. Great. That was a complete waste of time. So these days, having learned my lesson, I map out a workflow and not a complex one, like with a pencil and a piece of paper and just take a sheet of copy paper and say, leads are going to come in here. Proposals are created here. Estimate spreadsheets are here. Those proposal gets accepted. Those tasks get broken down and assigned here. That way, you have a framework that you actually have in hand when you're looking for tools that are going to fit your business workflow. One tip I would share, I'm very resistant to all-in-one tools. These are heavily marketed to freelancers, just you know, just buy this tool and it does everything you need. Um, they tend not to actually do that. They promise a lot, but they're not terribly good at any one thing. We have a little bit of a bonus here. Hopefully it'll be a bonus for you guys. In the last two weeks, I found three really good new tools that I'm excited about. There's a new to me app called Taco that solves a problem I've had for a long time. I work with different clients in different systems, and my task assignments are spread everywhere. There are some in Basecamp, there are some in Asana, there are some in GitHub, and that is exactly the opposite of what you want in order to be effective. So Taco has connectors, I think about 25 of them, um, that bring tasks into one interface for you. You can filter them, I think you can add sorting order, and they have this neat bit of functionality where your tasks are listed in a sidebar and you can pull two or three of them out to the center of your screen to focus on that day. So I would really recommend if you're in a similar situation where you've got a lot of diverse tasks happening across systems, which is becoming more and more common, check out Taco App. I also found a new bookmarking tool called Raindrop. It's at raindrop.io. And I, I feel like calling it a bookmarking tool really understates um, how amazing it is. It's beautiful, for one, which is very important for something you're going to look at all the time. It's really easy to use, and you can shape it into a kind of power tool. 
I've got folders for content to read, new plugins to test, tools to try. So the way that this works for me is I have I have a lot of very defined tasks in a lot of systems, but then, you know, there's a, there's a segment of work that you need to always be keeping up to date, reading things, you know, trying things out for your business. And I feel like a bookmarking tool like Pocket, which I used to use and Raindrop now is really powerful for that. My third recommendation is a neat little tool called Team Week. If you're managing other people in any context or really even managing yourself, one of the best things you can do is, is create a block schedule. And I've got a post on my site about, you know, routinely block scheduling your week, which is, is one concept. But this is another idea where you have active projects happening. And so you're able to look at a, a nice visual and say, I need to spend Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on this. And you just draw in those blocks and you color code them. And once they're in there, if you need to move them around, you can. And you have rows, so you yourself can be a role and row, and if it's only you, that's great. Um, if you have other people that you're scheduling for, other people that you're working with, you can clearly see, oh, such and such is on vacation, or it's a holiday in Canada, don't, don't book that there. Wow, we're really overscheduled, we need to find, you know, some some freelancers or some contractors to lay off some of this work. So I would really suggest you check that out. It, it has more features than that, some light project management and time tracking features. I don't use any of those. I just use it to do the block scheduling. Our next question is from Carrie Dills. Carrie asks, what's the number one mistake freelancers make? It's hard to pick one. If I had to pick, I would say, it's underestimating the amount of income they need just to stay afloat. And I'd pick this one because you could mess up a lot of things. But if you mess up your income, you can put yourself in a really bad spot and you can put your family in a really bad spot. So this one I'm kind of passionate about because, you know, I hate to see people really struggling. Oh, I have to try to find a job really quick so I can pay my mortgage. So if you're going to freelance, understand the finances of freelancing. When you're self-employed, you have to pay both sides of your taxes. I mean, this is in the United States. You have to spend more on insurance. You have actual business expenses at some level. So you get a really nicely priced project in. You get the deposit check you're really excited, you have to remember that only a portion of that check belongs to you, is available to you for, you know, your living expenses and income. So really try to focus. There's a lot of resources online, but get your finances right so you don't get you and your family into trouble. The other piece of this is freelancers tend to really overestimate the number of hours they can bill in a week. You have to be super realistic about that. And that number, in my experience, tends to be you're doing really well if you're billing 60% of your available time. So you need to, even this applies even if you're not billing by the hour. So let's say that you have a fixed price project, and that's great. 
but they paid you a deposit and they're going to pay you the balance when you finish, the amount of time that it takes you to finish that project, you need to plan around that being what your realistic availability in terms of work is. That's going to have a huge impact on your cash flow and your finances. We're going to finish up today with a bonus round from Jackie Delia. Jackie's asked some excellent questions that could be an entire podcast. Jackie's first question is, what is your approach to pricing projects? Are you using a value price model, hourly or hybrid, and why? Pricing is something I have a lot of thoughts about. I'll tell you how I do it and a little bit about why I do it that way. Um, There's no answer that's right for everybody. You've got to figure out what works for you. This is what I do. I've been running a small business for 17 years, and over the course of that time, have done many different types of projects. So I've done design projects like designing interpretive signage for a big, large public space, a project that had many components, you know, design, installation, um, physical materials. Of course, I've done websites that are small. I've done websites that are very, very large and a lot of other things too. But the one common thread across all of these that I've learned to do is my first step is to open up my estimating spreadsheet. And I break the project that's on the table into task chunks. I try to get as much information as I can. You won't, it's not possible to always know everything ahead of time, um, but you can make some educated guesses when you sit and think through, you know, what is the course that this project is gonna take? What are the tasks that I need to do? I need to set up a development environment. I need to install, you know, 12 plugins. I need to figure out how this API integration is going to work. So I go through that exercise and line item that all out in a spreadsheet with with my best guess, um, just in terms of hours, you know, what I think that's going to take. And I try to pay special attention to smaller items because I think that's what really hangs you up on a project. Just the act of, you know, setting up a dev environment, setting up a staging server, chasing down license keys, you know, for plugins from a client, you could spend half a day on that sometimes. And, you know, if you don't think about it, that's that's time you haven't estimated. So once I've got that estimate together and I, I have a number of hours that I think that project is going to take, I've got three different hourly rates in my worksheet. Um, The lowest rate is doable. That is the price that I could do this project for and really not hate myself. Um, My middle price is happy. Um, I would be happy to do this project. Uh, I feel like I'm, you know, making a good margin. I feel like it's well-scoped. And then my excellent price is where I feel like I'm really excited about this project, but it's complex. I feel like the, you know, the client has the budget to be in the in the upper tier of pricing. So I typically pick one of those. I look at how much work I have in my queue. Am I really busy? Is it a, a slower time? Slower time might me point me more towards the doable rate. I think about how easy or difficult that client's gonna be to work with. And some combination of those you know, helps me to arrive at the price 
that I put on that project. On the subject of value pricing, I think it's misunderstood. I think it's a really trendy phrase, but it actually has a very specific meaning, at least in my experience. So let's say that that your client is in a business that's oriented around lead generation. Um, it could be for, you know, quoting car insurance. It could be for, you know, something. They, they need leads. So they approach you and you've got a track record in being able to help them do these things through a combination of, you know, code, knowledge, design, whatever that may be. And you reach an agreement that you're going to help them, you know, maybe five times their leads in return for a price that is not how you would necessarily price that work otherwise. So if that client called me, you know, just without a value pricing model or anything in mind and the work they wanted done on their site, you know, to optimize this and to put this in place, you know, maybe that it's a small project and it would cost $5,000 to make those changes. In a value pricing model, I'm saying it's not important how much time I spend making these changes. I'm bringing you my knowledge of conversion optimization and I'm suggesting that the changes that I'm going to make for you are going to result in $300,000 in incremental revenue for you. You know, I'm going to give you $300,000 in incremental revenue and you're going to pay me $30,000 to do that, not $5,000. This is a more sophisticated pricing model. Most websites don't fit here in general. I wouldn't use the term value pricing unless you really understand what it means and what you're committing to. It, it is typically, you know, there are agreements. If we pay you X, you're going to deliver X results. You know, don't sell that or commit to that unless you're really prepared to do that. I'd use hourly pricing very rarely and only for open-ended consulting. If there's, if there's no way to scope the project, you know, the client and I agree, um, this definitely fits in the more consulting, freeform model, I would do that. But no, hourly pricing has a lot of overhead for billing. When you bill hourly and track your time, you tend to get a lot of client pushback. Did you really spend X hours doing this? Um, and it's just kind of a general pain. So I personally focus on fixed pricing or flat rate pricing is my favorite model. Jackie also asked price anchoring, your thoughts on it and do you use it? If you're not price anchoring when you're selling, you're not selling effectively. If you're not familiar with the idea, price anchoring is either setting a specific expectation that you work toward, um, kind of using some psychology skills or offering some choices that have that same psychological effect of moving clients toward the choice that you want. This is a sales tool. If you don't have sales experience, you want to look for some. You want to look for a mentor, um, somebody that's that spent some time in that field, even just to do some. Um, I mean, find find somebody that sells cars and you know spend a couple days with them and look at how they go through the sales process. 
uh, as freelancers and small business owners, one of the challenges we have is we need to wear many hats. And you don't always get to have real-world experience for the particular hat you're wearing, so you need to go out and find it. Um, and these kind of advanced topics, price anchoring, are, are something that you really would get to see in the real world if you found a mentor or somebody that you could tag along with in, in sales. So let's talk about a real-world example. Let's say a client approaches me and he has an idea that he wants built on the web and he would like to spend $2,500. I look at his idea and it's not a $2,500 idea. Um, for me, it would comfortably perhaps be a $6,000 idea. The first price he's going to hear from me is going to be more than $6,000. You know, when, when I talk with him, not necessarily send him a proposal, when I talk with him, you know, I'm going to introduce the idea um, that this is maybe seven or eight thousand dollars. When he ultimately gets my proposal for six, you know, he'll feel a little bit like he dodged a bullet. It's it's less than I set his expectations to be. That example is overly simplified, but that's one way to use price anchoring. The other way that you can use price anchoring is in creating options, um, typically three. So create a proposal that has everything that the client asked for, but price it according to you know what your pricing model tells you. So it probably came in this much functionality for let's just use $10,000. Then create options. So if he told you he wanted to be at six or 7,000, create an option with, with reduced scope. Um, that is six or seven thousand dollars. You can create another option between those two, your ideal and his ideal, or you can go the other direction and create an option that's priced even higher, which will have the effect of moving the client closer to your target price. So these are not things I'm suggesting you just go out and start doing. Um, these are these are more advanced sales things that you can get an education on. You know, there are masterminds, there are books. Don't just start doing it. Make sure you, you fully understand because once you start really doing more sales with your proposals, you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. And you need to be okay that you're not going to win everyone with strategies like these. The ones you win should have greater margins, but you're going to lose some. The last question Jackie asked, which is fantastic, is what are the biggest challenges you see facing WordPress developers and designers, especially in respect to the commoditization of their services, and what steps should we be taking to offer services that differentiate and add value? Commodity pricing in web design development isn't new. Um, it's just touching the WordPress space. Everyone past a certain age remembers the client with a nephew in the basement with his copy of front page while we were all laboring away to, you know, handcraft beautiful experiences. You know, the, the kid was knocking stuff out for, you know, 75 bucks for soda money, best case scenario. So what's really happened is this, is, this has been an issue 
you know, always, and it's an issue in every industry, you have commodities. WordPress grew very rapidly into a real content management system, and that created a seller's market. If you quote new WordPress, unquote, you could write your own ticket. It was new. It was hot. There weren't a lot of skilled resources around. That's different now. The market is maturing, which is to be completely expected, and you need to think seriously about how to position yourself and add value. We could talk about this for hours, but my short answer is that clients don't buy code and they don't buy content management systems. They buy solutions that are going to improve their business. That wraps up my Matt Report takeover, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Matt.